Great job doing that. Muy bien, muy bien. You may be seated. Man, I so love the fact that you guys are uh, going to Cuba. Dusty and Corrine have, have been so awesome in, in helping us make those connections in Cuba. And I have some great memories from being with you guys in Cuba. Uh, and we'll be praying for that team and the, uh, the rest of the folks who are in other parts of the country who will join you there. Uh, what an amazing thing it is. To have, if you've ever been on a trip like this, a mission trip, you know that it's a life-changing event. It, there's no way, unless you're really working hard not to, that you can come back unchanged. It affects everything you do. Ralph and Sharon, when you went to Sri Lanka, and I, I've had so many of you have heard the stories of you going to these places, and, and it's not so much what we do for them there, but what they do for us, the perspective that they open up in, in, our, in our world. We can get so limited, so small in our, in our world. And, and so uh, thanks for this team, Pastor Javier. We're so thankful that you're part of our community here now too as well. And just like those kind of trips, you probably remember other events in your life that happened to you that changed your perspective on everything. Life-changing events, we like to call them. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember, for instance, like when uh, President John F. Kennedy was shot. And you remember where you were and how you heard that news. I wasn't born yet then, but uh, some of you were. And, and you remember exactly how it left you and you realized that things were going to change as a result of that. Didn't know how. Or maybe when Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and we realized this is going to change things in our country, in our world. We didn't exactly know how. Or on a more positive note, with the moon landing. Some of you are old enough to remember, yes, that really did happen. I know many of you still think it happened out at Universal Studios, but it actually happened. They, they sent people to the moon. I can remember where I was when that happened. I was watching that on, on TV at my grandpa's house. And I remember my grandfather said, well, they've opened the barn door now. I have no idea what that means to this day, but I knew to him it was a big deal and that it was a life-changing event and it was going to change everything. I thought we'd be on Mars by now, but it, we're slow getting to other places. But you know that life-changing events like that are, are really sad ones like 9-11. You probably remember exactly where you were when that happened and what you felt while that happened. And, Again, changed us. Those kind of events, those kind of statements that we hear from newscasters or friends who tell us about it, changes us forever. This past week, we had a life-changing event happen, did we not, in our country here, that lots of media, lots of news all about this big event that happened that only comes around once in a great while. And I know you are as excited as I am about it. Taylor Swift's new record. I mean, that single, look what you made me do. I mean, will we ever be the same after, after hearing that? I don't know. I don't know. But November 10th, the whole album, Reputation, comes out. Listening party at Elder Sam and Mimi's house. Um, I know you'll all be there. They'll provide all the food. Um, that really wasn't the one. Uh, that was a big deal, I know. But, but the, the solar eclipse that happened last Monday, were you ready for that? Did you do all the preparation for it? Did you, did you know what was going to happen? Well, I really wasn't. I had, I had heard the news reports, read some stuff about it. And, and, uh, but actually, the day of, of the event, I mean, it really didn't register with me that this was as big a deal as it, as it really was. And so I wasn't prepared, you know. I'd heard it was coming, so like I had a magnifying glass. I was hoping to see better, see the actual thing happen. And somebody told me that's not the way you do it. And, and I actually was in a meeting all the way up until it was almost time that it happened. Somebody came to me and said, you guys, aren't you going to go watch the solar eclipse? You know. And so several of us went out. Our media design team went up on the roof of this building as if being on the roof is going to give you a closer view, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> But I went, I went out with some friends right out in front of nature's table here and got out there and my friend Ruth, uh, she had a pair of, of glasses. She said, you're going to need these. And 
I'll sell them to you for $25. And it seemed like a good deal at the time. So uh, she gave them to me. And so I was just standing there and I, I knew that I'm not supposed to look right at the sun. And, and I, but I noticed it, at first it really didn't hit me because, you know, I'd heard that it was going to get dark. It didn't get dark here. You know, and I heard that the temperature was going to drop and it, it never drops in Florida, you know, and, and then I was just kind of watching everybody else be excited about it. And then I did it, you know, put on my glasses. Oh man. You know, when I put these on and look at you, I can see right into your soul. So I'll be looking at you from time to time this morning, just to see if you're tracking with me. But I put these on and I looked up and I saw that solar eclipse and it was everything they build it to be. In fact, I took a picture of it with my iPhone, and and uh, pretty mate. I didn't really, I didn't really take that picture, but um, it is church. I have to tell you the truth. I I took that off of NASA's website, but it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's pretty amazing to see that and to see the moon and the corona of the sun and and how that works and to realize, I mean, like most of my educational career, I did all my homework after it happened, you know, and the, I, I looked and saw that, you know, it's a five degree tilt that the moon makes, five degrees elliptically that makes that phenomenon happen. And even though in different parts of the world, three or four times a year, people see this, but here in the United States, the last time we saw it was 1918. I wasn't alive then either, and, and, but in 1918, and, and I, I saw, and I read stories about it all week of people. I have friends that, you know, one of my friends actually went up in an airplane on the west coast and flew on both sides of it and landed his plane on the sun itself, he said, and, and it was phenomenal, he didn't do that, but, but he said it was amazing to see it as the moon kind of crossed and they kind of circled around where they could see both sides of, the, of that happen. Some buddies of mine tried to get me to go with them, but I didn't. They rented an RV and drove up to South Carolina and got there. And at first, at the time it was going to happen, it was a total cloud cover and they couldn't see anything. But they miraculously, they drove just about five miles away and, and said they were like little boys, little children running around gleefully watching this phenomenon happen. And that felt like it changed them in a way. And that's again what events do. The next one is in 2024, April 8th, 2024. And in Nazis, Mexico is the, the most significant point in the path of totality. Four minutes, 28 seconds. I'm getting an RV. Who's with me? We're going, we'll go. I've got glasses, $25. They're yours. Uh, but, but you have to be prepared, and I, I use that to just illustrate the fact that sometimes we can hear things like this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, and we can just think, well, yeah, that's, that's really great that we would hear these words that Jesus would give us, and, and what does that teach us, though? Sometimes to really understand it and to see it in a different way than maybe we've heard it all our lives or heard it said, heard it sung, or even said it ourselves. It takes a different perspective, a different way to view it. It takes maybe a different kind of lens even to see it. And I want to suggest that to you today, that we hear this prayer. Because as Pastor Joel has been teaching us, this prayer is not just a way that we are to pray, but it's a way we are to live. It's a pattern for our life in the kingdom. Last week, he set this up, the last couple of weeks, by getting us into the prayer and realizing that in starting with our Father, it positions us who art in heaven. It gives us perspective on the reverence that we are to have. And through that reverence for who God is, it puts us in a place to truly understand and hear the rest of the prayer. I'd submit to you today that the next part of this prayer, the second and third petitions, which you read in the Heidelberg Catechism there, the second and third petitions in this prayer are what really do now open up the frame for us. It's like a picture of the kingdom. And it opens up like a lens on a camera. It opens up the frame and lets us see this from a much wider place but also a much more focused place than the rest of the prayer. The rest of the prayer we'll get to, but, but just these two petitions we want to focus on today. 
And so I've been thinking this week about how do we see this prayer that we're so familiar with, how do we see it in the best way, in a new way perhaps? Well, there's, there is, um, there's a book by Immanuel Kant called The Critique of Pure Reason that uh, I'm not going to tell you I read this whole book this week, but I had heard it has some, some thoughts in it about this prayer. So I downloaded it on my Kindle. My Kindle got three inches thicker just downloading this book. It's an incredible book that Kant was an 18th century philosopher, a German philosopher. By the way, Ulf and friends at the clinic in Switzerland, welcome to you guys. I just saw you were online. Um, this, the, Kant brought this down and said basically everything in life if you want to see it differently, the three most profound questions you can ask are what can I know, what should I do, and what may I hope? And Kant set this up with this thought, all the interests of my reason, speculative as well as practical, combine in the three following questions. What can I know? What ought I to do? What may I hope? As I studied this a little further, I realized and I discovered that this was not original with him. It, was, it started with Thomas Aquinas, who was a, I love this, he was a doctor of the church, he was called, uh, back in the 13th century. And Aquinas took these th same three questions and he attached to them what are called theological virtues. And this comes out of what uh, we know as 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul ends that great chapter with three things that will remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. But Aquinas took, the, took that and attached this, these three theological virtues to the first question, he attaches faith. So what can I know? I can know faith. Faith in God's word is the Christian's answer to what can I know? Love of God and neighbor is the Christian's answer to what should I do? And guess what the one for the Christian's answer to hope is? Hope. Hope. It's not a trick question. You know, hope is, is the theological virtue that goes with the third question. So with faith, hope, and love, we can see the, these, this new lens, this new way of understanding. The reason this was, is such a big deal is this. For us, we've heard this, many of us, for a long time. We've, we know this prayer. We've said these words. We think just by knowing it and saying it, we must surely get it. But you understand that every other religion, every other thought system in the world that has ever been and is now operates toward this kind of perspective, a heavenly perspective or a kingdom other than the one we know from exactly the opposite perspective that it rises up in Greek tradition, in Roman tradition. You can go on through every tradition, even in Asian tradition. Those, this kind of perspective of heaven or afterlife or a greater life comes from down and goes up. Christianity is unique in that. The Hebrew thought was, and then Jesus brought that thought to fruition, was that no, it's the other way of, around. Earth is contained within heaven, not heaven is contained within earth. And so therefore it is heaven coming down. We must be called up if we are to see it. And that in fact God himself would come down to where we are and call us up if we are to see him. This is a radically different thing. So when Jesus taught them to pray, it was not exactly what they were ready to hear. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So those words should reverberate a little bit with you as you think, so what can I know? about this. Well, the first thing to know is this, that the kingdom is now and it's not yet. But we can know this about the kingdom of God and the will of God. First of all, that the kingdom of God and the will of God work contiguously and continuously to perform the work of God for all of, for all of eternity. And meaning that they work in harmony with each other, they are connected to one another, and they are literally one and the same 
but they still can look differently to us. Well, what's that mean? Well, let me, let me see if I can unpack it. First of all, you need to know that what can we know about heaven? If Jesus taught, taught us to pray that we can know he- his will and his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, it stands to reason that we should say, what do we know about heaven? Well, it turns out in scripture, we know far more about the will of God in heaven than we know about it on earth. Because what's God's will? What's going to happen to you when you leave this service today? You don't know. You, I mean, you're going to Golden Corral or the Wawa. One, but I mean, you don't really know yet which one you're going to do. I mean, you, but we can know what's going on right now in heaven. We can know that from God's word. God himself tells us what's going on in in heaven. And so if that's going on in heaven and he says, you pray that is true on earth as well as heaven, then what do we know about that? How can we know that? Well, you should know this, that this is the good news statement in this prayer. If you look at every time Jesus preached to people, spoke to people, conversed with people, had any kind of interaction with people in any way, there was always a gospel statement somewhere embedded in his communication to them. He told good news to everyone he met, even the people who hated him. He spoke good news. Maybe we should do that. Maybe we should think about that, that what good news statement have I made to you? C.S. Lewis said that in every conversation we have, we are moving people in one direction or another. We're either moving them toward heaven or we're moving them toward hell. I'm not pointing over here because I think this is the hell side. I'm, but we're, because I'm not, hell can, hell somewhere, hell might be down there, but the, but we're moving people in one direction or another. It depends on our gospel statement to them. It's not overt always, but it's a good news statement, you know, that we should be telling one another the good news in every conversation we have somewhere along the way. And so Jesus is telling us this part of the prayer is the good news statement. Why is that? Well, here's why. Paul tells us later that here was the plan all along. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. And so when Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven, that's him bringing it all together. That's good news. We can also know that this is a pivoting, a pivotal statement. It's an establishing statement. All the rest of this prayer that Jesus tells us to pray are provisional statements. They are for our provision to provide for us what we need. It includes daily bread, forgiveness, freedom from temptation, deliverance from evil. The rest of the the petitions that we'll pray in this prayer are things that we're asking God to do on our behalf. This is something that God is telling us he has already done and is in fact continuing to do on our behalf, whether we say it or not, he's doing it. But here's the reason we say it. I don't know about you, but my brain is capable of entertaining equal and opposing thoughts all the time. I think about things all the time that don't make sense. I mean, things that don't align with each other. You know, Paul was with me in this when he said, the things that I want to do, I don't do. Things that I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do the things I don't want to do. I do them sometimes. Those are, those are opposing thoughts. It can go on all at the same time in my head. But I found that I can only say one thing at a time. Now, a lot of my friends in the room will tell you that I talk out of both sides of my mouth. But that's not possible to actually do. I've tried that. You can't do it. You can only say one thing at a time. And so Jesus says, pray this. Pray this one thing. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the last few years, I have begun to do more and more of this, of just talking out loud to God. I usually do it in my car and I, and I will often put in earbuds. So people that going by don't think that I'm, I'm, they think I'm singing or having a phone conversation, but I'm, I talk to God out loud all the time. Part of it is I really believe this thing that that we don't speak it into existence, but we affirm it into existence. It's what God does. But when we say it out loud, 
Just like we speak good news gospel to people in conversations, that when we say these things that Jesus tells us to say, we are speaking that into the realm where the Holy Spirit works. I know I'm getting a little Pentecostal for some of you here. But we're speaking those things into the spirit realm where God works and where the kingdom really operates. It doesn't operate always down on this level. We have to look up. We have to come up to where the spirit is working and see how he's working so that we can participate in the working of God. And so we speak it because this is an establishing statement. When we make this statement, we are affirming that he is reverent, he is respected and revered, and we acknowledge that his kingdom and his will is on earth as it is in heaven. It's also a longing statement. It's a, it's a statement that we are in agreement with him that we want this to be present. We want it to be now. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes it this way when he writes to the church there. He's saying that all of creation, not just human beings, but all of creation is groaning for the redemption of the world, longing for everything to be fulfilled. This is not just us. This is all of creation is longing for this. Here's specifically what he says. This is uh, the message paraphrase of it. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. I love that. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. This is, by the way, pardon the pause, this is the opposite of anxiety and worry joyful anticipation. It deepens. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. I love this too. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. Easy for Paul, a man to write that. I know that women. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The spirit of God is arousing us within We should feel this kind of joyful anticipation when we pray the words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All the power of the kingdom comes through in that kind of statement. But this is also a perspective statement on what the will of God actually is. Again, if you want to know what the will of God is for the earth, look at what the will of God is that he's already carrying out in heaven, that he is making happen in heaven. What's going on in heaven right now? Well, we know that all around the throne, men and women from every language, nation, and tribe are worshiping him. We know that all over heaven, people are working. They're doing, their, they're doing real work, craft work. They're forming things. They're making things, creating things. Don't believe me? Read the book. Read Revelation. You'll see that we are participating in creation with him in heaven. But then here's the culmination of that. In Revelation 21, we see something of the heart of God. This is where God, Jesus has called John, the apostle John, the one he, he loved, has called him up to heaven to see what he's doing. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Revelation 4 where Jesus says to John, come up here, come up here, get yourself up here. And I'll show you what must take place after this. And then he begins to show him. And John is writing it down, writing it down for Northland Church, writing it down for you in in the various places where you're gathered. And he he comes to this chapter 21 and, and he writes that he says this, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Pastor Joel taught us last week that the sea represents chaos in the world. No more chaos in heaven. It's not the will of God. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes because that's the will of God. Death will be no more because that's the will of God. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more because that's the will of God. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. That's the will of God. I am making all things new. That is the will of God. And I'm thinking at this point, when Jesus is dictating this, speaking this, and John is hearing it, and he's writing as fast as he can, that at this point, he must have just kind of got caught up in it, just brain fade, just like, whoa, this is big stuff. This is huge. And Jesus, like, snapped, John, I called you here for a reason. Write this down. <laughs> Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And then it, he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. This is the will of God that we see the beginning and the end, that we see the joy that he intends for us to know. Joy in your life is the will of God. How do I know that? If you study this book, if you study Revelation, you'll see that not only is there this kind of fulfillment of the will of God, acknowledgement of the will of God, but do you know that there is an aroma in heaven? Do you know there's a smell there? That if you read, and, and have you ever wondered what the aroma is? What, those of you who sell essential oils are gonna love this part. Because whatever your best, whatever the best aroma you can imagine it is, I don't think that's it. There's an aroma there though. And why would God go out of his way? Why would Jesus go out of his way to tell us that there is an aroma in heaven? Well, I think it's just a, a gentle nudge to remind us, you know, all of our senses are going to work in heaven. You know, we're not, if you think it's going to be, you're going to be an angel with a harp and a cloud and that's not heaven. That's, that's a fictional work that was written, you know, uh, in Paradise Gained or something. I mean, that's not heaven. You're going to, your nose is going to work there. I think it's partly just to tell you, you know, your nose is going to work. If you can't smell now, and I know people that can't, you'll be able to smell in heaven. If you can't hear now, you'll be able to hear in heaven. If you can't speak now, you'll be able to speak in heaven. You'll be able to leap and run and play. There'd be a lot of play in heaven because I think, well, anyway, I could go on and on about that, but I need to finish. Uh, heaven's going to be amazing, but there's an aroma in heaven. But Jesus doesn't tell us anything to compare it to. He simply says the aroma of heaven is joy. What? The aroma of heaven is joy. In heaven, it will smell like joy. How's that work? It's not good branding, is it? But the aroma of heaven is joy. And here's the way I think we can think about that, that joy has nothing that is opposite of itself. There's no opposite to joy, just like there is no opposite to God. Samuel, in 2 Samuel 7, 22, Samuel wrote, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you. If you think Satan is the opposite of God, you're wrong. 
Satan's not the opposite of God. He's no match for God. He's no comparison to God. The best he could be a match for would be a good angel. He's at, at best, he is just a bad angel. But he is not the opposite of God. He is no, his power is not equal to God's. There is no match for God. There is none you can compare him to. Same thing with joy. You cannot compare you cannot find anything that is opposite of joy. Most things, if I say, well, what's the opposite of warm? You would say, yeah. If I say, well, what's the opposite of pleasure? You might say, pain, yeah. If I say, what's the opposite of uh, Florida Gators? <laughs> I just wanted to see what you'd say. You know, for most things, we can think of the opposite of it. But for joy, there's no good word. I thought and thought this week. And the best I could come up with was maybe anguish. You know, that maybe that's the opposite of joy. But it's not really. But probably the only real answer for the opposite of joy would be hell. I keep pointing over here. I don't mean, this is not the hell side. The opposite of of joy is hell. You know, um, that good. I'll never, never do it again. Um, this is a, this is the heaven side. From uh, this is all heaven side. So anyway, so joy is the thing. Joy is also the currency of heaven. I love the way G.K. Chesterton wrote this in his book Orthodoxy. One of my favorite statements is that joy, which is the small publicity of the pagan, is the giant secret of the Christian. Why is it a giant secret? Well, it's because it's so good, we don't hardly know how to give it to people because they can't contain it. They can't take it in. If you're not ready for joy, you won't be able to hold it inside you. That's why you see so many people around you who seem distressed and and sad and weary and full of woe. It's because they have not been able to open up their joy container. And joy is something that you have to, just like an eclipse, you have to be ready for. It even takes special glasses to see joy because it is that wonderful. But it will be the aroma, the, the, the currency, if you will, of heaven. And how is this possible in a world where so much evil takes place? How do you ever line these two thoughts up? Well, I'm going to have to hurry here, but there's a lot of ways to, uh, God goes way out of his way to make sure we see this in a number of places. And I'm just going to pick one, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Joy is such an immense and expansive thing that it will, e- it will eventually take even the worst things that have happened in your life and absorb it, absorb those things. Sorry to get emotional, I look around this room. I know some of your stories. And you're thinking, how's it possible I don't know, but I believe it to be true, and I speak it to you, that one day there will be no more crying. I I won't do this. (laughs) I won't do this in heaven. I'll be laughing all the time. One day your pain will be taken up and absorbed into joy. It's true. It's true. So let me, let me see if I can wrap this up. So the first thing is, what should I know? And I've spent the most time on what you should know. Because what you should do and what you can hope for, they flow right out of that. First of all, what can you do? Well, Jesus has made it known to you what you should do. Love God. Love your neighbor. It's the first thing you should do. And you should be on guard. Second thing you should do is be on guard of anything that is a counterfeit of that. Anything that exalts us into some status that we don't belong in is a counterfeit of humbly loving God and loving our neighbor. 
That's why we're so appalled by events like two weeks ago in Charlottesville, Virginia. What an appalling example, especially of people saying that they, they are Christians, they're followers of Jesus, and then have those kinds of perspectives against other human beings. They're not paying attention to, in heaven, the will of God is every language, nation, and tribe will be, are, is represented there. And none of us have any kind of soapbox to get on in terms of who gets in and who doesn't and any kind of superiority. We are brothers and sisters. We're co-heirs. And so counterfeit examples of that are things, again, that we should speak out against. The church should speak out against. This is me speaking out against, on behalf of you, that kind of so-called supremacy that is preached and, and uh, embraced. Uh, and I need, to not, I need to get off my soapbox now, so I will. But amen to that. That's who we are. So we are to be on guard against the counterfeits of the kingdom. How do we do that? Well, we put on the whole armor of God. And I would encourage you at some point, even today, to read through Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, from 10 to 18, we are given, Paul gives us a very clear word on what this looks like and how we put ourselves in, in strength in the Lord and His mighty power. I'm not going to read through it all right now, but it just comes to the end of this passage with these words. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests, and with this mind be alert, and keep on praying for the people of God. We need to keep on praying for one another. Third thing is this, that we need to beware of busyness in the kingdom. That God is not impressed with our busyness. He's required, he's impressed with our submission. A friend of mine put it to me this way this week. He said, I have spent most of my life trying to work hard to be, to be God in this world. I want to spend the rest of my life being in God for this world. You see the difference? You know, being in God, resting in Him, resting in His provision, and then being that in the world, that's the will of God. That's the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We live in a world that functions much differently than this. We live in a world that functions with a great deal of anxiety. W.H. Auden, one of my favorite poets, wrote these words in, a, in what started out to be a poem called The Age of Anxiety. started out, it was going to be four lines. It became a longer poem. It eventually became a book, an entire book. And, but he has these four key lines. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. Where our anxiety comes from is our illusions in this world. Our anxiety is something, though, that we deal with every day. And just when you think you've beat it, does it sneak around some other way and get you? You know, just this morning, so I preached this sermon last night, most, mostly this sermon this la last night. And I knew I needed to make some changes, and I got up really early this morning and like 4.30, and I went in, I've got a little study at home, I went in, I got my Bible out, and I was going to work on this sermon, I was going to rethink some of this stuff and, and think about it, and as soon as I sat down in my chair, and I made the mistake of having my phone right beside the chair, and all of a sudden my phone just starts blowing up with text messages and emails from my bank. You know what's coming next. Um, it wasn't that I just overdrew. It was that someone else decided to overdraw me. And so my, my, bank, uh, my bank account was hacked. And so somebody in the Philippines has just nickeled and dimed me to death at this point. And so they're going to take care of it. But for about an hour and a half, I was consumed with my little piddly bank account. I was consumed with it. I mean, starting with, you know, going on my mobile app where it says I can access them 24 hours a day. 
and going on there only to find that no one's working at 4.45 on Sunday morning. And so I'm pushing all these, all these different numbers and I'm calling all these different numbers and I get in these recordings and finally it says, if you, if you are in an emergency, call this number. I call it, I'm in an emergency. I need to get a sermon ready. That's my emergency. But right now I need you to stop people spending my money in the Philippines. And so I, I get a hold of this woman and I tell her my situation and she said, sir, it's going to be okay. We're going to take care of this. And I said, how are you going to take care of this? And she said, well, I'm not exactly sure yet. I said, that does not comfort me. Uh, how are you going to take care of it? I just want all that to stop and just to be back where I was. I just want to be where I was at 430 when I thought everything was okay. And she said, she didn't say this, but she was implying it. Is there anyone else in, in your house with you? And I said, yeah, my wife. And she said, maybe I should speak to her. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. She said that. I think she could tell I was out of control and she could not reason with me, which Connie did fix it. She fixed it all. I mean, she always does. And so we're okay and everything's fine. But I only tell you that because that's, that's how quickly anxiety can just come and overwhelm you. It overwhelmed me this morning. And so I want to calm down. I want to rest. I want to know the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. How do we know what that looks like? Well, if you ever wander over to our children's wing over here, there's a painting over there by Edward Hicks. It's called A Peaceable Kingdom. From what I know, I think Edward Hicks, this might be the only painting he actually did, but he painted the same painting 58 different ways. And one version of it we have hanging over there in the children's wing. And, and the thing that I love, take a look at this painting. What I love about this painting is it's, it's a picture of uh, people who are oddly proportioned, which makes me feel better. Uh, but it's, it's also a picture of, you know, what we, we know the scriptures say, that the lion and the lamb will lay down together. They will peacefully, not just coexist. Because let me tell you, peace is not just coexistence. Peace is actually working with each other for the good of one another. And, and I, with all due respect to any of you who are driving a Prius, I drive a Prius, and have coexist bumper sticker. You know, it's kind of required to have on there. But uh, any of you who have that, with all due respect, I understand why you want to say coexist. We should, it'd be, we should co coexist. But let me tell you, that's not the highest call on our life. It's not coexistence. It is activity. It is actively working for the good of another person actively working for your good, speaking good news to you, speaking the gospel to you. That's what a peaceable kingdom is. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is the coming together of all things, the coming together of all things, including people and animals and creation and the will of God and the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let me close with this thought. There was a movie that came out in 1986 called The Mission. Many of you might have seen this movie. I love this movie, uh, partly because of the region that it, was, it's, that it centers in. It, it, it uh, tells the story after the Treaty of Madrid in 1750. It's based on, an, on a true story that there were in the region of Brazil and Argentina and Paraguay where they come together in South America. There are some beautiful, it's beautiful countryside there. I've seen some of this countryside, it's beautiful. But in, this, in the 18th century, there was a, a, a lot of slave trading that went on in that region that, that um, people would come from Western Europe and come over and, and uh, take the Guarani Indians uh, into captivity and they would take them and sell them on, in markets. Um, it goes on today, but it was especially prolific right in that region at that time. In the midst of that, some Jesuit priests had been trying to come and move in among the Guarani people, and they wanted to share the gospel with them, and they built a mission there. And in this story, a lot of aspects to the story, but the, the scene that I want to tell you about involves 
a, there was a slave trader by the name of Rodrigo Mendoza and, and Mendoza had gotten into a fight, he had, he had uh, stolen, he had taken uh, into captivity many of these Guarani Indians. They knew him. They knew him by face and by name and, and Mendoza was hated among that group. And still he would, he would do this, and, and he, but he got into a fight with his brother and killed his brother in, in an apparent act of self-defense over a woman that they both loved. And, and he, was, he, he was so persecuted by the fact that he had killed his brother, he, they didn't send him to prison, but he sent himself into his own prison, and he was in bondage to his shame and guilt and remorse. And he, and he could not escape it. And, and one day, this, one of these priests, Gabriel, came and convinced him to go with them to this mission. It was a hard journey to get up to this mission. And so he, said, he, suggest, and, and he suggested to Mendoza a penance. You and I don't have to do penance for our sins, thanks be to God. But sometimes we do need physical activities that remind us of our forgiveness. And so Gabriel suggested to him this penance, that he take all of the armor that he had used as a mercenary and a slave trader, and he put it into this big netting uh, bundle, and then he pulled that armor up this incredible climb to the top of this mountain where the mission was located. And as they climb up this mountain, you see him struggling and pulling and pulling on the weight of that armor that he had, that he had worn all of his adult life. When, he, when they get to the top, there's this incredible scene where one of the chiefs of the Guarani who has been around these priests comes over with a knife you don't know what he's going to do to Mendoza. He's been taught to hate this man for good reason. You don't know what he's going to do. But what he does is he goes and he cuts off the rope that holds that weight to Mendoza's back. And the armor goes falling over the mountain and down the falls and into the river. And then, there's this, and then the chief begins to laugh. He just begins to laugh. And Robert De Niro, who plays Mendoza, begins to laugh as well and cry at the same time. And the chief leans down and embraces him. And Mendoza is free. But what I love, as much as I love the scene itself, is a song, is a musical score that accompanies this scene. It was written by, it was composed by Ennio Morricone, who's an amazing composer. And what I love about the music is how it starts with just this single instrument as Mendoza realizes the weight has been gone, has been lifted from him. And then what happens is the musical score begins to build and more instruments are added and it expands and then percussion comes in and then voices come in and in Latin they're singing the Lord's Prayer. And the name of the piece is on earth as it is in heaven. That's the will of God. And so as we close today, I want you to hear this piece of music as you spend just one or two minutes here meditating on the words of this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And then together and responsively, we'll do our benediction, which will tell us of the kind of people that Jesus loves. And I think you'll see yourself in the crowd. Take a look at this.
you please stand? So before we do this benediction together, let me remind you that we'll have some folks praying in the front of this room as well as online. They would love to pray with you and for you about any weight that you're carrying today. You can lay that down. We encourage you to come pray if you're in, if you have physical ailments. Our elders are here and they would love to pray with you according to James 5. And for any need you have, would you come? But as we close, when you think about the people that Jesus said will be blessed, it's his will to bless them. It includes people that we would have never probably expected him to name, but he does. It's recorded in scripture in this same sermon that we get his prayer from called the Beatitudes. So we're going to close responsively by focusing on these words and just taking them in, letting them be the good news, the gospel in our lives. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown merciful. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go and live it everywhere, every day. Amen. Go in his peace.